We have one of the nicest MCs coming out of the Bronx joining me here on the show here tonight, Universal Soldiers Entertainment, the general, my son. My son, what's going on? Welcome to Sports and Hip Hop with DJ Mad Max. How you doing, King? I'm doing pretty well. How's your night going? How's life this year? So far, so good, man. Everything's going good. You working on a new album? Yes, I am. Is it going to be similar to You're Scared, Stay Inside? Uh, well, that's 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 a project that me and um, Trade the Truth did. Um, we, we put that, that project together while we were both in Louisville, you know, um, fighting for Breonna Taylor. And we decided, you know, we wanted to make some music that pretty much, you know, exemplifies and showed the state of mind that we was in at that time. So we put together that project in actually two days. We went in the studio in two days, got the beats, wrote to it, and we put that out in two days. Impressive. And it was an important message, and I applaud you for doing that because I'm always saying, where are the hip-hop artists today that speak out about it? I remember when the protests were happening with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, CNN's Don Lemon was saying, where is Drake? Where are all these high-profile rappers out here speaking out about it? Does it bother you sometimes that the high-profile rappers out there, such as Drake, don't speak out about it? I mean, everybody has their own preference, you know. Some 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 people rather support things from behind the scenes. Some people don't want, you know, the spotlight or the criticism or, you know, just the, the, the backlash that comes from being vocal about those situations. You see that a lot of artists and athletes, when they actually take those stance, they get a lot of backlash. And, you know, they get told to shut up and dribble. And, you know, they get told that this is not something they should be doing that it doesn't coincide with their brand so you know a lot a lot of artists don't want to deal with that so i don't have anything against anyone who who doesn't see the the necessity to fight on the front line like me i just all i ask is don't do anything that you know that that'll hurt our fight you know if you're not going to help the fight you know and you don't feel the fight is something for you just don't do anything to hurt us what was your and, and Trey's definition of the, the album for If You're Scared, Stay Inside? What was the meaning that you guys were trying to display to that? Was it for the people that weren't coming out and protesting? It was, it was, it was just basically saying, you know, we two frontline soldiers. We two brothers that, you know, we come from the bottom. We come from the dirt. And, you know, we're we, we going to fight. You know, we're going to stand and we're going to do what we have to do. You know, every, it's not for everybody. It's, it's not for the faint at heart. So it was just like, you know, just let you know where we stood. And you're out there doing acts of bravery and we need more people like you out there. And what was insane was that when the whole George Floyd incident occurred, that there were actually tons of white people that were protesting. Was this the first time that you really saw a lot of white people out there protesting? No, actually, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, it's a lot of people would be surprised that a lot of, the, the protests that I go to, there's actually a lot of white, it's, it's probably sometimes more white people protesting than actually black people are, you know, so it's it's not that um white people don't want the right thing that, you know, most white people aren't, um, aren't just naturally racist. A lot of people want equality. A lot of people see things wrong and they want to find their voices and they want to find the space that they can to um fit in and, and um do something for change. You know, it's just that we live in 
a racist society where a lot of white people benefit, you know, by osmosis off white supremacy. So they don't they don't do it purposely. They just don't. A lot of people, you know, they do it com- they comfortably. Like you'll see a lot of people at protests and you see a lot of people marching, but a lot of people aren't going to go to jobs and into homes where they have racist cousins and nephews and, and, and speak up. And, you know, and say certain things shouldn't happen or go to certain jobs and say, hey, you know, we know we, we have racist practices here. And until we change those practices, you know, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to boycott along with the black people here. Those those things aren't the things that's happening. But there's, there's definitely a lot of people that come and protest all races. And it's important. And it's surprising that the, the George Floyd was the, the one to really stick out for people because this has been going on for years. I mean, with Rodney King, it's been going on since the beginning of time. And even with the recent passing, which is yesterday, I would love to have your reaction to the anti-lynching bill that was passed for Emmett Till by Joe Biden yesterday. Um, you know, it's long overdue. You know, um, the fact that it's been turned down 200 times is something that's just mind-boggling to me that I think you you would think it's common sense to know that lynching should be a hate crime. But, um, you know, that's America. America has been built off of lynching. You know, it's, it's, it's ingrained in the fabric of America, you know, and, and, and they were fighting with everything they had to hold on to that, you know, to that, because that's part of, actually part of America's legacy, lynching. It's one of the things that through our history has been talked about so much. So, you know, I, I, was, I wasn't I was really surprised. You know, I, I knew at some point you, you have to let go of the most racist practice in this nation, and you have to admit that it's a, you know, it's a, it's a hate crime. But, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a lot, uh, way too late. I agree. It, it, just thinking about it, just looking at everything that goes on in this country, I do feel as though we, we really haven't come as far away as we have wanted to. And then you have President Trump that set us back. That set us back a few years. I feel as though we're in the 50s. And you're looking at, even if you look at it from the NFL standpoint with sports, I just heard the other day that the NFL made it a thing that you have to hire a female minority offensive coach just now. Well, you know, I, I, you know, they are, they, we are making strides. You know, I, w- I would be remiss if I did, excuse me, acknowledge that there are definitely, you know, there are a lot of different um, people in office now and in position now that, that you know, that they are fighting to get equality for blacks and for, you know, for women and part, you know, a lot of, I know a lot of women empowerment activists who are brave, who are brilliant, who are fearless. And they've been fighting for these things. You know, when we talk about sports, there, there are women who play sports better than a lot of pro athletes play sports and they, you know, and they deserve opportunities, you know, to be able to at least show what it is that they can bring to the sport. You're absolutely right. And when did you realize, because when I was growing up in high school and learning about the Malcolm X and they really didn't touch it because I went to a Catholic private school. 
So when, when they were teaching me, it was all whitewashed. And that's pretty much what these history classes do. When did you realize that everything was whitewashed? Because when you get older and you go to college and even when you just start learning outside of school, you learn about Black Wall Street. When did you realize that the school systems are whitewashing everything? Um, I mean, I, I guess as you grow older, as you know, in my in my my late teens, early twenties, I started to you know realize that a lot of things we were taught weren't factual, and then we weren't taught a lot of things, you know. And then I started to make assessments. I started to just make assessments of life in general and see how we were living in comparison to a lot of different ethnicities and, and races. So it's like a lot of these things don't make sense, you know? Then you started to do the history and say, oh, this is why this is like this. Oh, and we did have people who did this. Oh, there was a black culture. You know, when you don't when you don't see representation or you don't believe that there's something that's possible because you don't see it, you, it's, it's hard to actually achieve it. It's hard to even actually strive to do something that you don't see, visibly see as possible. So, you know, it was, it was a lot. We went through a lot in our schools, our school systems. A lot of the teachers who didn't come from our communities didn't really care about the kids. You know, I remember my third grade teacher told me that I'd be dead or in jail by the time I was 20. So, you know, and, um, and I never forgot that. And this was a white teacher, I'm assuming. This was a white man, white teacher named Tucker. Unbelievable. Do you think, too, because I know I've had conversations with people in college that it, it would be so much easier and relatable if these colleges hired more black professors, because I think that could be the disconnect between a lot of the college students. I mean, it would. You know, if, you know, I have a lot of people. I get into a lot of discussions and people say, oh, you want to make everything about race. You want to make everything about race. And this. And it's it's not so much race as it is culture and understanding and and cultural competence and relativity and, and being able to relate to someone, right? If if you don't have someone who's able to actually relate to your struggle or your just your trauma or anything, be able to identify what actually you go through as an individual daily, it's hard for them to be able to teach you or connect with you or even understand how to teach you. You know, and that's why we have so many disconnects. And you see that young black men drop out of school at higher rates than anybody because they don't feel any connection in a lot of these schools. They don't feel that there's anyone in there that looks like them, that sounds like them, that makes them feel like, you know, it's the, this is where they should be. You know, so I say that all the time, man. You have to have culturally competent teachers. You have to have credible messages. You have to have people that someone can relate to. You know, and, 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 and when you look throughout the world, most other races are taught by people that look like them. People who identify with their struggle. You know, the teachers give them give them a, a certain leeway because they identify with them. They understand because they feel like this kid reminds me of me. I've been I've been through this thing. I'm gonna give I'm gonna give him a level of energy that I know that I required at that time because I can identify with this struggle because I've seen it before. Because we come from the same culture, we come from the same community. So I, there's a level of connection there. You know, when you when you're in school and you don't you're not connected with any teacher who who understands why 
you might be a little more angry or dealing with a lot of trauma or understands that things that went on in your household may have been traumatic and, and, and toxic in your home. And, and somehow, despite all of those things, you actually made it to this college, you know? And if you don't have a professor who's able to identify that and just thinks that you're supposed to act in a certain manner and anything other than that is something that he can't identify because your struggle with something he can't identify with, it's a lot harder, you know? And, and some of us do it, but more often than not, we don't because the school system itself was never built for our attributes. It was never built around what black people like and what black people connect with and what black people culture, you know, how do we teach people within their culture, within their comfort zone? And I don't think black people were ever considered in this current school system. It's a sad reality. And, and just, I think there should be a checks and balances for professors and police because when I went to St. John's and I think it was, a, it happened like my senior year at St. John's last year. And I heard about it. There was a professor up at our university that was teaching why slavery was positive and beneficial and he got fired. And mm. it's just so crazy to me that in 2021, that th- there would be a professor like this teaching us at a college, a liberal college at that. Yeah. I mean, Racism is, like I told you, it's embedded in, in the fabric of America. So when you speak to someone who has a white supremacist mind state, they can justify just about anything negative that happened to black people. They can say, well, black people did this, or black people didn't know this, or black people who didn't understand this, or black slavery was beneficial because it made us money. We needed the economy to go. We needed people who was going to do these things. And, they, and they've rationalized things like that in their mind because they've taken the human being away from the black person, right? They don't, they see them as property. They see them as cattle. They see them as animals. They see them as something that they own, not as living, breathing human beings who deal with the same emotions, pain and everything that they do. So that's why they can justify, you know, because, They've, they've been taught that we're pretty much subhuman. Do you think that it's possible, and have you had an experience to even speak with a, a white police officer about your goals and what you're doing and helping out the black community and how we can make a change? Have you had an important conversation with a white officer before that was understanding at least? I mean, I've had many conversations with white officers. You know, all like we say, all white officers are not racist, right? All white officers are not bad people. All officers in general are not bad people. I think the structure in which they under just makes them able to capitalize, the, the bad ones able to capitalize and move through it and be able to go unscathed through the structure because it's built on races, right? It's when they go to these academies, you know, the way that they've been taught about how black people are, how dangerous they are. That's why every time a black person is shot or killed, the main thing that they say is that they they, they felt like their life was in danger, right? They they criminalized your black skin. They they made it a crime and made your skin dangerous, right? Every time they see a black man that who does that has any level of stature or you know strength that looks any, he intimidates. Them. Right, and they're able to utilize that. And the law was built under the premise that black people were dangerous. So the law supports 
anything that leads to that. So if you can beat, if you beat, shoot, kill, or anything to a black person, the law has already been structured to identify black people as dangerous. This is why we get, we very rarely get the justice that is deserved. I want to tie it into this, this, this recent event and just your reaction to what happened at the Oscars this past Sunday night. What's your reaction to it? Because I mean, it was at the whitest event, the Oscars and the, the way that they're portraying the, 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 the whole event as an act of violence and that it was a bad look on, on black people. And I don't, I don't want it to be that way. Do you, what's your thoughts on the reactions of how everyone's going crazy over that incident? I think, first of all, we have to acknowledge that violence in, in any setting is not something that we want, right? We, we, we don't want to see violence happen. And that's, that's the first thing that we, we have to acknowledge. And the fact that there was violence, you know, we, we understand that there's consequences. We understand that, that, who, that you know, Will Smith is going to have to face consequences and deal with repercussions for acting with that violence. With that said, you know, we, we, we have to look at a situation in its totality, right? We have to look at an individual who has been a stellar individual his whole life, who's been the best of us, who has pretty much walked us through our troubles, who through our pain, who has given us motivation and words that has stuck with us, you know, that have, we've lived our life by, who has not only taken scrutiny, disrespect, who's done all of those things with a smile on his face, you know, and to ignore all of those things and make his worst moment define his legacy is absolutely wrong. It is, it is, you know, it is an atrocity, right? And, and, it, and it comes back to the racist society that we live in, right? Because I was just reading where they talk about whether they're going to rescind his award and, mm. and um, ban him from the academy and all this. You know, we, and we look at Harvey Weinstein. We look at other people who have Woody done, Allen. Woody Allen. People who have done way worse things who they didn't do that to. Right, who, who weren't banned from the academy, who weren't, who the awards and things weren't rescinded, right? So we we understand that the fact that that's even a conversation, right? And you know, unfortunately, you know, we live in a culture where people deal with emotions. You know, people are dealing with trauma every day, right? And and not to give that man grace and say, damn, he must have really been going through something. He really had a day because you can ask million, a million people and most of them would say they've never seen him react from his family to anything. You know, he's always the most even cute. So we have to say to ourselves, what happened that pushed that man to be have that level of anger? You know, to, re, to, to take that level of anger to that stage. You know, it, there's a, a plethora of things, right? And I think Nobody looks at those things. They just look at the act. They don't look at how the act is being provoked. They don't look at how society itself in the last few years has been beating that man up and, and, and violating him and talking about him with memes and things that, you know, that question his manhood and, and devalue who he is as a man, right? And then you see a situation where 
his wife was disrespected. And once again, he's faced with a, a situation that tomorrow he can turn into a meme. He could turn into the butt of the jokes because he allowed a man to disrespect his wife, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's trauma. That's saying you people, nobody looked at who caused the trauma that he's dealing with, right? So, you know, I just think that um, a lot of people who have talked about it, you know, some people come from a place of understanding, you know, and this comes back to cultural. You know, I made a statement earlier, I mean, yesterday about Gail King, Gail King had questioned Jim Carrey about what happened, right? And, and, and people got mad at me because I said, Jim Carrey's opinion of the situation is not even relevant because Jim Carrey cannot identify with being a black man in the world, right? So he don't, he does, first of all, he doesn't know the situation that led to that. He just knows like everybody else, you know, there's, there's a history between Chris Rock and, 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 and Will Smith from 2016 when they called for a boycott of the Oscars because they said it was so white and it was racist and it wasn't given the due, you know, respect to black people that they deserve. And Chris Rock, you know, on his own merit, decided that he was going to host that year. Not only was he going to host, he was going to utilize his time to pretty much diminish the boycott that they called and tell Jada that, well, you wasn't even invited here. You know, you can't boycott the Oscars. And Will, you know, yeah, you mad because you lost, but, you know, we mad that you made money for movies that we didn't think was good. And and that diminishes. This is a man's, you know, you, you, you people, think, people think those things are simple, right? Because they've never actually stood for anything. If you never stood up for anything, if you never was willing to risk your life and stand up, and fight on behalf of the people, it, to you, that's just a joke. It's just somebody says something, you know, you just get over it. But when you go on a limb and you and you risk everything because you said to yourself, this is something that's wrong and I'm going to risk it, like I said, you don't have to join me. You don't have to march with me, but you you don't utilize your voice and your platform to diminish me. You know, you don't you don't say, oh, forget his boycott. You know, for no, you you don't want to boycott, talk about the show. But to do that, like that, and then I have to sit in my home and have to answer those questions and watch my wife feel disrespected because basically you say she's nobody. So how can she call for a boycott? These 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 things hurt. And they and they build up resentment, they build up trauma, and they build up to the next time something happens in that way, you're triggered to react. Because you've already held in all of those things. so But nobody cares about that. So when I said, Gail, you know, and Jim Carrey, I said, Jim Carrey's opinion is is not relevant, right? It's it's not relevant in this situation because Jim Carrey hasn't had the struggles, the realities of either one of those individuals. You know, we need to start the healing from within and asking people who can't identify with the reality that either one of those men have had to deal with and the struggles and the pain and disrespect and all of those things that they've had to deal with coming in this business, you know, to give an opinion on something. And then they give a negative opinion at that. Not something that could say, you know, it was a really bad situation, man. You know, I, want, I know both of them. I, I want this to be resolved. I think maybe Will was wrong. I definitely think he was wrong because he should. And th- those would have been things that to some degree, or for a level of solace in 
grace and understanding and, 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 and still acknowledgement of you feeling someone is wrong, but it offers some level of healing. But to come out and just talk someone's most disgusting thing, he shouldn't have been it, like all of those things, it don't that that we don't need that. First of all, we don't need it. And your opinion on it really doesn't matter to us. Let us deal with it. You know, let us deal with it the way that we deal with it. So, you know, I, I, I'm praying for healing on both of them. You know, I have a lot of respect. These are two uh, icons who have done a lot of things and paved the way in different manners and different forms for our culture. You know, so I'm hoping that they get to a place of, you know, just peace and understanding and healing. I agree. It's just insane. Like when you see people that were sickened by it and we also have to add on top of everything that we're in a very sensitive time now. And just the people that were sickened by it, uh, I guess they're, they've been sheltered their whole life because even though you can classify it as an act of violence, it wasn't the most violent thing ever. You know, you know what I'm trying to say? Exactly. I, think there were, I think some people overreacted way too much over the violence. And that's what for, me. And for me, it's like a lot of the people who were doing it, I know some of y'all. Y'all come from the Bronx and y'all come from Harlem and you come from Brooklyn. Like you've seen violence. You, you've seen worse for less. You see somebody tell somebody, mother, hey, shut up. And the dude comes downstairs and beat the shit out of him until he knocked out cold and blood bleeded or stabbed or somebody gets shot. Like, you know where those things actually can go in our culture and our community. So for you to make it seem that this is the worst thing that's ever happened, we're not diminishing that there was a violent act. But there's a lot worse that could have happened in that situation and has happened in similar situations. You're, you're, you're absolutely right about that. It's just insane. And I, I like I said, I hope everything comes to a, a closure with that. I, I think I think it will. I think we'll hear something in the near future if they resolve some things. I know Will Smith already sent the apology out, but it's just interesting to, to, to hear your take on that because that was something that just relates to everything. It goes back to culture, goes back to race always, and you know it, it's insane. It is yeah, unbelievable how that, how that even took over the internet. But I want to get into. I know my rights. Bill of Rights. This was a children's book that you wrote to attract to the youth to send a message to the youth about the to know your rights under the 10 amendments and under the constitution. Yeah, that was a book that, um, you know, my, one, the, the person who published my book and co-authored it with me, Hedrick McBride, you know, brother from Harlem. I mean, from Brooklyn. Was he from Harlem actually? Um, he came to me and he said, you know, I got this idea, man, you know, you have a strong following. A lot of kids listen to you. And I think, if you wrote this book about, you know, the, the first 10 amendments of the constitution, I think it would be powerful, you know? So I, I took him up on it. And within the less a week or two, you know, we came up with the book and it was, you know, the response to being on a bestseller list, and so many different um, celebrities and everything supporting it and schools and it's become, you know, quiet reading in a lot of different schools. So I'm just, I'm blessed, you know, and I'm happy to be able to do something like that and create something, you know, working on the second book called Raising Kings, which is about the 12 or 13 principles of manhood. You know, what, what, what it is it takes to be a manhood, to be a man, you know, and because I believe that our kids have been fed so many misinterpretations 
you know, about what manhood looks like and what real and all of these things are. And they've, and they've adopted a false sense of reality about manhood. So, you know, I want to give them some real tangible things that will, you know, help strengthen, you know, character and, and help to make them, you know, grow in a manner that's going to make sure that they're honorable. Has there been any reception from any of the youth as, as a kid came up to you on, on the street anywhere, or just out at a performance anywhere, saying to you that, that that book touched them and inspired them and helped them learn about these situations? Oh, there are a lot of kids, you know. A lot of, a lot of young kids have said it. Parents come to me and say, yo, you know, I didn't know half of these things. You know, and I sat down and read with my, my son or my daughter, and, and I'm like, wow, I didn't even know this. You know, it helped. It's, it's a family you know, it's a family too. You know, it's a lot of parents that I know that they sat down with their kids and they, they, they're amazed and they sit down with the whole family sits around and they, and they study the book and they go through piece by piece. So it's got, it's gotten rave reviews. It's gotten a lot of love from people. So I, I'm just blessed and honored to be able to have created something that's had the magnitude and the response that this book has. And congratulations to you on that. I'm looking forward to the upcoming book, and I'm sure that you're going to have an impact with that for sure, because you did with the first one already. You have an impact out here in the communities. Just hearing about your case, it just it eats at me because you lost seven years of your life being in jail, and you were convicted for something that you didn't even do. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, it was hard, man. At the, at the pinnacle of my career, just not really pinnacle at the beginning, of my rap career. I was signed to Def Jam, you know. Through Chris Lighty. Yeah, through Chris Lighty. R.I.P. to Chris Lighty. Mm-hmm. De- violated Def Jam. And um, preparing to drop my, you know, my, my debut project. And um, just to um, be taken away at that time. You know, it was, it was rough. But um, unfortunately, that's what we deal with in this culture. You know, sometimes... Everything looks like it's going fine, and the next thing you know, you turn around, and they throw they throw a curveball. And the only thing you can do is just go along with it and continue to fight and continue to stay strong. So that's what I did. You excuse me. Utilize my time and my energy to grow as an individual, mentally, physically, emotionally. You know, just striving to be a better individual. So when I re-enter society, that I would be a progressive member of society, you know. And I've been home, I've been home about 15 years now, you know. And, and, and it's a blessing. It's a blessing to have been able to come home and be able to reacclimate to society and, and actually be someone who's progressive and doing things that's pushing the culture forward. And this is also where you came up with Universal Soldiers Entertainment as well. Yes, you know, Universal Soldiers, us, ENT, was an organization that I came up when I when I was in jail and when I came home, you know, I uh, put it into activity. It just was about unity. It was about showing us, everything was us. It was everybody that was with us was us. You know, so that's what the, the whole theme of us ENT was about. Credit Concepts Agency is another important thing that you created as well. Well, I didn't create Credit Concepts Agency. My friend 
um, came to me with an idea and uh, with his company and wanted me to partner with him on Credit Concepts, which was a credit building and a credit repair organization. And they wanted me to be an ambassador to um, offer those services to formerly incarcerated individuals to help them jumpstart when they came home. Because as we know, you can't really do anything without credit these days. You can't get cell phone, can't, you can't do anything. So we wanted to jumpstart them and give them opportunity to get free credit cards and to get their, their credit repaired if it was damaged, you know, and give them a, a fighting start to be able to reacclimate to society. That's amazing that you're doing that, especially just with your experience that 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 really changed your life. And something that was really eye opening was when you were in there, you learned about someone you met someone in there that was doing 25 to life for robbing a white woman's purse, allegedly. And they only took a dollar and there was a, a gun, but the gun was never recovered. Yeah. One of my friends, you know, um, my friend in Cozy, he's actually home after doing about 30 years in prison. I seen him a couple of years ago and um, he, he told me how he was arrested for robbing a white woman who supposedly only had one dollar in her pocket at, at gunpoint. And they never found any gun. They never found the money. They never found anything. It just She said that he looked like the guy and, and therefore they convicted. Unbelievable. And do you, there's, there's so many issues with the prison systems out there and, and just people they call jail, the modern day slavery, the, the whole systems have to be reworked because even I've heard you say about it before and just hearing other people's cases that you'll have rapists come out, do no time, but someone who's wrongfully convicted of armed robbery, they'll have to face all these years, even if they didn't do it, even if they did, but someone yeah. that's a rapist, they got so, so much earlier. There's definitely disparities. Exactly. There's definitely disparities. Disparities in the legal system, you know, and race plays a big factor in those situations. And, and certain kind of crimes, like you said, you know, rape and pedophilia and those things, for some reason aren't as aren't as sentenced as harshly as, you know, supposedly violent crimes like robbery and things like that. You know, even though one is a crime of poverty. You know, wherever there's poverty, there's going to be crime. You know, so when you're robbing somebody, it's a crime of poverty. But when you are raping someone, there's an intentional, you know, act that you know is harming someone. You know, it's an intentional act, and, and you've made up a conscious decision that you're going to physically overwhelm someone. You know, it's just different for me. But I don't make the decisions. I don't get to judge, you know, what I, I, I know right from wrong. You do. And that's why you're here today and you're making a difference out here and, and speaking about just everything with, with rape culture and you speaking out against it. We do know that you were actually protesting when Brett Kavanaugh was being sworn in. Yes. You know, at that point I was one of many who were out there protesting and um, I had a, a position at when the women's with the women's march. I was the head of security for the women's march, so I was out there 
along with my sisters who were the um the co-chairs of Women's March and um I was supporting them and you know just being around women for a long time what I started to realize and started to listen to them, right? I started to listen to them explain to me what rape culture was and what we as men don't understand. And then I started to identify and I started to take it in and I didn't get defensive and say, oh, women just say it. And I just, you know, I started to get less defensive and started to just really listen and take in information, you know? So, so that's what I did. And, and I heard women explaining to me how rape culture is dangerous and how we've all contributed to it and how most men have, you know, engaged in it in one way or another. And then I started to think and say, wow, we have, we all have, we all have pressured women or decided that, you know, we, we you know, some, maybe some point they, they didn't, didn't seem completely comfortable with, we wanted to talk them into it or things of that nature. We tried to sway their emotions and, and because they actually liked us, they didn't want to disappoint us even against what they wanted to do. They said yes, and they did things that they weren't comfortable with. And we never, we never seen it as anything. We call it, quote, unquote, running game and, 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 and talking to a woman out of her pants and all those things. But those things were what rape culture was because a lot of women aren't aggressive enough to say no. A, a, a lot of women, not two times, the first time they say it, and then when they sense some level of discomfort, or anger from you, it could it makes them uncomfortable. So they want they want you to feel good. They want they want to make you happy. They want to please you, even at the detriment of themselves. You know, so it's not it's not literally rape, but it's it's a culture, and it's a mind state that we have when we're dealing with women that is toxic. It's an important issue that to speak on about and, and that you've been speaking out against for years. And, and actually, I, I think that you were arrested when you were protesting against that event, too. Yeah, I was arrested in the courthouse during the nominee, during the nomination. You know, I stood up and, and um, yelled out, you know, how this, the, the whole court was a sham. And, you know, to allow someone in like Kavanaugh would be disrespect to the constitution and I was immediately escorted out and locked up. Where was that energy the day of the insurrection? That's what I want to know. That's what we all want to know. <laughs> Unbelievable. If this insurrection, if it was all black people up there, there would have been open fire. That's a fact. It's just that unbelievable. Is- I mean, it's, it's a shame. And just I, I got to acknowledge just what you're doing out here for the Street Politicians podcast, too, with Tamika Mallory. And you, you speak out about some important issues and just how COVID's affected education and even racism in the Medicare system. Yeah, you know, shout out to my um, my co-host, Tamika Mallory. Um, it was a it was an idea that we both had years ago as we've been doing this work together for about the last nine years. You know, some years ago, we decided we wanted to do a podcast. And I kept saying we need to do a podcast, you know, because we have both have very strong opinions and we have different views on a lot of things. And, you know, we're very passionate for our people. So, 
you know, it was an idea. And we've, we've touched on so many different topics, had so many different guests, you know, from wealth building to education to um, racism to police brutality to just community empowerment. So many different, you know, um, topics we've touched. And, and we just, we actually just scratching the surface. This is our third year of our podcast, but we, last year, we signed with um, iHeartRadio the Black Effect Network, which was created and owned by Charlemagne God. Charlemagne God, yeah. And so we're on our second year of that contract. So, you know, I just th- I think it's a beautiful thing. I actually enjoy it. And uh, I, I, and I get a lot of, we, we're getting a lot of good feedback from a lot of people who listen. Who's someone that you want to bring on the show that you haven't been able to yet that you think would be important discussion? Oh, there's so many people. I don't want to single out any individual, but there's uh-huh. so many, you know, individuals that I respect, who I believe have knowledge, who I believe have levels of gems and, you know, information that they could share with our listeners that would be something that would be, you know, a beautiful thing. I think so. It's just important what you're doing out here. And do you think, because I look at it from this way, I think there's certain people that it could be education. I think it's how people are raised at home when it comes to racism. Do you feel as though that there's white people out there that should put themselves in black people's shoes? Because I think that if they put themselves in black people's shoes, maybe they'd be able to come to an understanding about some of the things that happen because they don't, white people don't know what black people go through and just the fears of police brutality, not being able to, possibly come home from school at night, which is a very real thing. I think, you know, I think that would be ideal for the most part, if we could just, just switch places and they had to actually go through what we go through and put themselves in our shoes. But is it really realistic that they can actually go through and experience the full, you know, the full complexity and the full reality of being black in America, what we, we actually go through. I don't know if that's really a reality. I think some have had a glimpse and just having a glimpse have woken them up. So, you know, I just think if they take the time to just just pay attention, you know, if they just really take the time to pay attention to what it is that we're dealing with in this country, you know, I think the response would be a lot different. A lot of people would be, you know, a lot more empathetic, you know, about the reality we deal with. I want to get into some hip-hop talk with you because you're from the Bronx, the birthplace of hip-hop. Your first album that you listened into was EPMD, Strictly Business. Yeah, EPMD was my first album I ever had, Strictly Business. I went and brought it. It was an album, and, and you know, we had... We had um, we had um radio, we had um record players back then, you know, and I put it on my record player, and I would play it all day. It was one of my favorites. It gave me, excuse me, it gave me the energy and it gave me, you know, the passion to want to be a hip hop artist myself. Especially the park jams. Do you remember going out to these park jams? You have one in in particular. So many park jams, man! Shout out to there was um. A, a Jamaican guy in my community named Lloyd who would throw black parties every year. He would block off the street and he would give away free food and play music. 
And, you know, those were some of the best days of my life. The Bronx is the birthplace of hip hop. And I just learned about your family and your father taught you a lot. And I, I heard about the, the abuse and his addiction and, but he, he taught you how to box. Yeah. My father, you know, he, he, he suffered from addiction to um, heroin and crack cocaine, you know, very young when I was young and he, he suffered with a lot of mental health issues as well, but he was a very good, strong individual. He's a, very smart individual. He's actually compassionate, but he, he taught me how to buy. He taught me so many different things. He taught me so many things about manhood and what honor and respect looked like and what integrity looked like. He was big on respect and integrity, you know, and I learned that those are real big things that I learned from him. Something that I found very brave when you were younger, when you heard about your mother getting involved with drug dealers, you were fighting off drug dealers. Yeah, that was that was one of my jobs, man. My father had passed away when I was 12, so I was the man in the house. And um, most of the drug dealers in the community, I knew who they were, knew of them. You know, I, they, most of them were older than me, but they knew who I was. And, and I had a lot of respect in the community because, you know, I, I wasn't somebody who was a pushover. And I also was trying to do the right thing, playing basketball, still going to school, still doing things that was respected by many. So they gave me a level of respect that they didn't give everybody else. So when situations like that would happen and my mother would owe drug dealers money and we were on food stamps and they would come to try to collect our food stamps and payment for drugs that she owed them, you know, I had to say no. You know, me and my sister need to eat, you know, and, and that's my mother. so. If you do try to do anything to my mother, then I got to fight and I got to do whatever I can. But I'm not going to let you hurt my mother and I'm not going to let you take food out the mouth of me and my sister. It's amazing that you did that. It was important. And that just goes to show you were the man of the house and you stepped up. You were a basketball player. Was there a time you think that you could have went pro at basketball? Well, I was nice in basketball. You know, young, I probably could have went pro. But so many different things I was dealing with. I lost focus on basketball, just having to deal with the ills and spills of life. You know, that's that's the reality of being a young black man. We didn't, I didn't have someone who was going to pay my way. So while I was trying to figure out how to play basketball, I had to figure out how to survive. You know, in 1920, I had to figure out how I was going to survive. You know, I needed money, so I couldn't focus on basketball. It wasn't like, you know, I had somebody who's going to pay my way through things. You know, I didn't come from a well-to-do family, so I had to put basketball on the background. And in relation to basketball, you also, when I was reading something online that you, you turned for mentors and just looking up to Allen Iverson and Stephon Marbury. Allen Iverson is a very good friend of mine. So is Stephon Marbury. You know, I, I come from New York. We had great point guards, sham guard. You know, God, Sham God is also a good friend of mine. So I, I grew up in that era and played amongst guys of that caliber. And, and throughout the years, we've all grown, you know, to have really strong friendships. So they, you know, they, they're more, more friends than mentors, but definitely I've learned a lot from all of them. John Jay College, you went there, you were studying criminal justice. Was there anything that you took away during your time in college that's even helping you to this day with your movement, especially with politics? 
Uh, yeah, it's more about the law, you know, just understanding how the law worked, you know, just studying law and understanding how it worked and opposed to what we think, how we think it worked, you know. So I, I was able to apply that to this this work that I do and, and have some level of knowledge about the law in general. You were out here battling. I've heard the story of you battling Shine, and even Nori's told it plenty of times. And he called you an animal when you were battling Shine. Yeah, that was that was pretty much like my introduction into the industry. You know, um, my manager, my and Chris Lighty, God bless the dead, had um pretty much told me to, you know, they wanted to see me battle Shine. He was out talking and battling with Nori, and they told me to come out there. And then next thing you know, me and him was going at it, and um, and Nori just got out the way and was like, oh, this is a real battle. This seems personal. You know, shout out to Sean, who's another one of my real good friends. You know, we've, we've maintained a, a real good friendship, loving what it is he's doing right now and how he's fighting for Belize and how he's utilizing every relationship an opportunity he can to help his country. So shout out to him. Have you guys re- talked about that story since? Because I know afterwards, I think it was at another event that there was someone that said that, are you the one that said that you beat my man? Yeah, there was a situation that um, almost turned into a, a physical altercation with one of me and one of his friends. But after that situation, we became really close friends. So you know, I, with me and Sean, Sean, we actually interviewed Sean on our podcast, and we talked about that on the podcast as well. That's big right there. And just reflecting on those legendary moments in the start of your career, there was actually a bidding war from you, and Jermaine Dupree wanted you too. Yeah, Jermaine Dupree was one of the first people that wanted to sign me. Puff Daddy, Un, from Entertainment, who was um, partners with Big, with Big. Those were like the first three people that came to me. And then Chris Lighty came, but he was from the Bronx and he was really adamant and he, and he kept coming, you know, so he, he made it to where I had to choose, you know, Violator as my label. You were on there with Foxy and Cormega. Mm-hmm. We were, the, we, were the, we were the only three people on the Violator Def Jam label, you know, that was Chris's own imprint on imprint on Def Jam. Mona Scott was there too, I think, right? Yeah, she was she was part of the um the um the the, the team and um she was very instrumental in a lot of the success that a lot of the artists had at at Violet. It's just a shame, like you said, we already got into everything and what happened after that and there's 50 Cent. Because you were in the studio with, with Jam Master J and 50 Cent, Prince Marky D. Yeah, me and 50 Cent had a battle in the studio with Jam Master J and Prince Marky D. Um, God bless the dead. Two on um, Prince Marky D, who was another one of my close friends, you know, who always, who always showed me love and vice versa. That's right. And you come out, was there, when you came out, were there any rappers that reached out to help you and help you get back on your feet as quick as possible in the hip hop scene? Um, not really. You know, everything that I've got within the hip hop scene, I had to really grind for. Unfortunately, I didn't come home and artists didn't, didn't roll out the red carpet and give me, you know, the same opportunities 
in situations that they did a lot of different rappers. You know, that wasn't my reality. But, you know, no hard feelings. There was some that, that did, you know, some things for me. But for the most part, this was all about my grind. And you've had one hell of a journey, I'll tell you that, making an impact out here. Soul Not For Sale, that was a, a one important album that you had there. I Have a Dream, you have some important songs on there. What was the message that you were saying for Soul Not For Sale? Was it the fact that there are some artists out there that sell their souls in this industry? Yeah, shout out to um, my brother, Connie Sun, who also was on the song with me. You know, there's a lot of people that just sell their souls, not just in the industry, just in the world in general. You know that that will compromise what they believe and their principles for some levels of money, and I've never been that type of individual. So, you know that's what the, the song was pretty much the details. An important album. You got everything on the way. You got an upcoming book. You're already working on an upcoming album. My son, is there anything else you love to let the audience know that they, we didn't cover here tonight? I mean, I think you pretty much covered everything. It was a very <laughs> thorough interview, so I think it's pretty much. But um, you know, I'm working on new music. You know, I'm back in the studio. Um, we're still working with Until Freedom is an organization that I founded along with Tamika Mallory, Linda Sarsour, and my brother Angelo Pinto, which is an immediate response and civil rights organization, national civil rights organization, which we fight against police brutality, just civil injustices worldwide. So that's something that I'm doing. I also have an organization called Raising Kings in which I deal directly with impacted youth in communities and mentoring and, you know, on violence interruption and just, you know, education, just providing all wraparound resources and services in our communities for our young at-risk youth. So, you know, I'm just trying to do my pay, pay it forward and try to do my role and trying to make sure that the next generation has it a lot easier than I did. He's a true inspiration out here. And I'd love to hear some more work with you and Chi Ali because the track body that you did, that was tough. Yeah, shout out to Chi. Chi is like my brother. We've been best friends since we were like 16 years old. And um, he's he's he went through his struggles and pains just like I did, you know. Uh, but every day, I, pretty much every day I talk to Chi. And he's he's out here living his life free, you know, doing the best he can. So... Shout out to Cheating, and that's my brother. Oh, I I actually have one more thing to bring up here, Mace, because you actually had the opportunity to be an AR AR on Mace's album. Yeah, I helped Mace and uh, his um double up album. Mm-hmm. We went to the Bahamas for a week with me, him, Pop Daddy, and the whole Bad Boy camp, and I was out there with him helping them put together his album. And um, he's somebody that's also like a brother to me, man. He was one of the first people who took me under their wing when I first got signed that, you know, that had me around him and and showed me a lot of the ropes and, you know, flew me from state to state, you know, and um, just just, just got my my, my feet wet in this industry and, and gave me some knowledge and a lot of things about this industry as well. We're supposed to do some writing for Diddy, too, I heard about. Yeah, I was supposed to when I was out there. You know, there was a lot of writing sessions and trying to come up with some ideas. Unfortunately, you know, I wasn't able to do that. But Puff is also another one of those individuals that I respect. And, you know, that is is a a good friend of mine, someone that um, 
I've known for years and the, and the, the mutual respect is there. My son, we covered everything here. I appreciate your time and doing this and interview with me. I wanted to get out all the important points in the beginning of everything you're doing for civil rights and especially what you're doing with your music. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for allowing me to be here. I hope, you know, the listeners enjoyed the interview because I enjoyed it. I appreciate that. And continue to rep mics and fight for civil rights. Amen. God bless. <laughs> For sure. And they can follow you on Instagram at my son, NY general and at Twitter, my son. That's right. That's right. My son, I want you to enjoy the rest of your night. Take care, stay safe. And you're always welcome on the show. Anytime you need any promo, you want to come back on, you'll have a seat here. I appreciate you for sure, man. Enjoy the rest of your night. You too. Take care. Stay safe. Peace. Peace out, man.